0: So hopefully you still remember where we are. First Samuel twenty-five. That great late century late twentieth century theologian, Garth Brooks, <laughs> sings in one of his songs that, that some of God's greatest gifts are unanswered prayers. Well, I don't generally suggest heading to the country station on the radio or any part of the iTunes store uh, for developing your theology, there's a lot of truth in that statement. We, we often pray asking God for things through our limited little view of the world, our, our myopic field of vision, and God in his wisdom and in his kindness ignores our requests and does something better than we could ever imagine. Likewise, there are times when our minds are are set on an action, either we've deliberately set our minds to this, or we're just responding to something in the moment, and God, again in a display of his kindness, totally thwarts our plans. And that's precisely what we're going to see in this text this morning in 1 Samuel 25. The chapter opens with what seems like a historical footnote. 1 Samuel 25, verse 1 says, Now Samuel died. But of course, if we remember the way that this book moves, this is hardly a small or insignificant piece of information that God just gave to us in three words. This is Samuel, the center of the story in the first part of the book, first seven, eight chapters. He's the central character. He's the person for whom these books, First and Second Samuel, are named. He's the last of Israel's great judges through whom God exercises his rule. He's a pi- pivotal figure, not just in this book, but in the biblical narrative as a whole. And now he's dead. But the text just drops that information with us and tells us that everyone was sad, and then they buried him. <laughs> and then it keeps on moving, it just moves on past. He died next It's been often noted that when one of God's servants dies, he doesn't go into a panic. He simply says, next. And so our narrative turns back to the man who is next, David. Of course, the death of Samuel is relevant for David as well. As Robert Van Oy points out in his commentary, this notice is not a piece of irrelevant information. It is a notice telling us that David was particularly vulnerable to the onslaughts of the evil one because he had lost his most important counselor. And in the past, you remember, when David's had a hardship, he's had the ability to go run to Samuel to get help, to get advice, to get comfort. Sees chapter 19, verse 18. But those days are now over. Samuel's dead. He's not totally gone from the story. He's going to make a surprise appearance later. But but he's he's dead. And as we turn to the meat of the story one of the things we're going to notice is that though this is a long chapter it's not a long narration of events there's not a lot of the the narrator speaking instead the majority of the chapter is carried by dialogue people speaking within the story and within these dialogues we find certain words repeated one helpful thing to do when you're reading your Bible is to try and notice when something is repeated so when you're reading the Beatitudes, asking, why does Jesus keep saying, blessed are, blessed are, blessed, why didn't he just say that at the start and then list all the people who are blessed? Every time he says, blessed are the in spirit, blessed are the meek, blessed are the da-da-da-da-da-da. Why does he do that? When we get to, to Isaiah and Isaiah sees this vision of God's throne room, why is God called holy, 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 not just holy? Like, That repetition, it's there to draw our minds to something and to cause us to think about it. Well, as we go through 1 Samuel 25, there's quite a few of these repetitions, most of them in threes, although one at least is in in a grouping of four. And so as we move through the text, we're going to have to go go kind of fast. It's a long chapter, right? Uh, But we'll slow down and focus on these repetitions somewhat. But I want to first look at the first section of our story, and we'll see a fool's Selfish response to a peaceful request in verses one through eleven, two through eleven, really. As we leave Samuel's grave and come back into the Judean wilderness, we meet a very rich man. David rose and went down to the wilderness of Paran, so that'd be in the southern part of of Judah, actually south of Judah. And then he comes back, and there was a man in Maon whose business was in Carmel. The man was very rich he had 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats. So he's obviously done quite well for himself. I mean, that would be a massive amount of wealth in the ancient Near East to have 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats. Further, we find out at the end of verse 3 that he's a Calebite. So he's a descendant of that great spy in the time of of Moses and Joshua. Moses sends these spies into the land and all of them come back scared and it's like, we can't go into the promised land except for Caleb and Joshua who say, oh, we've got God on our side. This place is awesome and we can take it. Well, the people end up listening to all of the scared spies, but God then when Caleb and Joshua comes come into the land, Caleb is given a special inheritance aside from the rest of Judah. But we should note that Caleb is of the tribe of Judah as David is. So they're kinfolk, that Nabal, this man whom we meet, and David, they're related. But before we ever get into the story, the Hebrew reader of the story would notice something curious. This guy's mom gave him an awful name. Nabal means fool. So imagine if your mom named you fool or some other English synonym. Hey there, stupid. Hey there, idiot. Like, This guy is probably a little scarred. Um, Whether he's scarred or not, we don't know. But the text does tell us he acts his name. Uh, Verse 3, excuse me, it says, the man was harsh and badly behaved. The NIV says he was surly and mean. And this is in contrast to his wife, Abigail, who was a woman discerning and beautiful. So now a fellow like this, he would have shepherds all over the mountains, like to keep track of these 4,000 animals. He's got tons of shepherds leading his sheep and his goats from pasture to pasture. And what we find out as we read through this story is that David's messengers, from David's messengers and from the witness of Nabal's servants during this time, is that David's group of 600 men and this group of Nabal's servants, they've intermingled. They've had interaction there in the mountains. And not only during this time has David and company not stolen anything from them, as we might expect, you know, a group of hungry men hiding in the wilderness. Hey, thousands of sheep we can eat. But they don't. They don't take anything from them. And beyond that, not only are they not stealing from them, they're acting as a wall. They're protecting them from any who would come and steal from them. So it's reasonable then when David heard that Nabal had brought in his shearers in the spring of the year, and so he's going to have his big spring feast, David sends some servants down to ask for a gift in return for the services that he had provided. So you see that in verse 5, so David sent 10 young men, and David said to the young men, go up to Carmel and go to Nabal and greet him in my name, and thus you shall greet him. Peace be to you and peace be to your house. And peace be to all that you have. I hear that you have shears. Now your shepherds have been with us, and we did them no harm, and they missed nothing all the time that they were in Carmel. Ask your young men, and they will tell you. Therefore, let my young men find favor in your eyes, for we come on a feast day. Please give whatever you have at hand to your servants and to your son, David. So notice the tone of David's request there in verse 6. Peace be to you. Peace be to your house. Peace be to all that you have. Well, what message is David trying to convey? Peace, shalom to you. He's, he's conveying friendship. He's conveying peace, respectfulness. The end of verse 8, please give whatever you have at hand to your servants and your son, David. Some commentators, when they come to this chapter, they construe what David's doing as, as a sort of ploy, as a, an attempt to start a, a protection racket, kind of like he's the mafia. But I think that totally miss, misses the tone of David's own words, as well as the testimony of Nabal's servants later on. Uh, I think clearly what we see is that David and his men have acted righteously towards, the, towards this man and towards his property, and they're hoping to be beneficiaries in return of his kindness during this festive season. But here is where Nabal earns his name, verses 10 and eleven. Uh, helps if I'm in the right chapter. Verse ten and eleven. Nabal answered David's servants, Who is David? Who is the son of Jesse? There are many servants these days who are breaking away from their masters. Shall I take my bread and my water and my meat that I have killed for my shearers, and give it to men who come from I do not know where he reminds me of a character our kids have, this book called Fountains and Vacuums. It's a series of poems that goes, and each letter of the alphabet has a character that there's a poem about. And when you get to the letter I, it's a man named Ivan, and his his name is Ivan I I me me mine. And verse verse 11, that is precisely Nabel's attitude. My bread, my water, my meat that I have killed for my shearers, is Nabel I I me me mine. And it's obvious to us as readers, uh, at least I would think, that, that annoying a man of war like David, it's spitting in his face, might not be the wisest move. But the foolishness of Nabal goes deeper down and touches on the very biblical definition of foolishness. Dale Ralph Davis notes in his commentary, perhaps there is some variety among fools, but Nabal is, in low-level American parlance, a thick-headed clot. Biblically, however, he is worse. Psalm 32.6 shows that Nabal does not merely lack manners. He is a spiritual, moral, and social disaster. So Davis cites there Psalm 32.6. Let me read it for us. Psalm 30, not Psalm 32.6, rather, Isaiah 32.6. Isaiah 32.6 says... For the fool speaks folly, and his heart is busy with iniquity, to practice ungodliness, to utter error concerning the Lord, to leave the craving of the hungry unsatisfied, and to deprive the thirsty of drink. Throughout the Bible, foolishness is not merely a category of the intellect. It's a category of moral standing. You see that when you read through Proverbs. The terms wise and fool are basically synonymous with righteous and wicked. The fool is contrasted not only with the wise, but with the righteous. And in this passage in Isaiah 32, what is said to be folly, iniquity, and ungodliness is to fail to feed the hungry. That's not just an Old Testament principle. You see the same thing in James Nabal is the worst kind of fool. It's worth pondering at that jun- at this juncture, are you that kind of fool? When you see someone in need and look at your capacity to meet that need, is your heart reflection, your heart reaction, is it a reflection of the generous heart of God towards the ungrateful and the ungodly? Or do you think of my money in my account made by my labor and saved by my diligence? Do you have a generous heart, or are you a nable I, I, me, me, mine? The next thing we see are the sinful swords of vengeance. If you're reading through 1 Samuel, coming fresh off of chapter 24, where we see David's remarkable restraint, In the way that he reacted to Saul. So remember, Saul comes into the cave to use the bathroom and David's right there and David could kill him. And David doesn't. He he instead cuts off the corner of his robe, which he even then feels bad about having done that much. And so we come to chapter 25 and we might expect him to, to find him brushing off or laughing away this silly insult from Nabal. However, These insults towards David, who is David? Who is the son of Jesse? They've apparently been taken personally, and David responds with a call to arms. And so in stunning contrast to the threefold peace that he offers in verse 6, peace to you, peace to your house, we instead find a threefold repetition of sword in verse 13. And David said to his men, every man strap on his sword, And every man of them strapped on his sword. David also strapped on his sword. It's as if he's saying, who is David? I'll show you who David is. (laughs) David's anger is such that in the words of, of Joyce Baldwin, though he had spared Saul and repaid him good for evil, David on this occasion has no second thought about incurring blood guilt. He's just not even stopping to pause. Is this a good idea? He's just, strap on your swords. Let's go. Let's go kill them. To what extent is he seeking to exact vengeance? Is he just going to go mano a mano with with Nabal and kill him? No. Verses 21 to 22, which are placed later in the story, but the way it's phrased probably take place. He's probably saying these words back here at, at verses 12 and 13. It says, now David had said, Surely in vain have I guarded all that this fellow has in the wilderness, so that nothing was missed of all that belonged to him, and he has returned me evil for good. God do so to the enemies of David, and more also, if by morning I leave so much as one male of all who belong to him. He's not just planning to kill Nabal, he's planning to kill every man in his family, every man that, he, that works for him, he's going to wipe them out. It's going to wipe out all of the men connected to Nabal. And just to drive that point home, rather than simply using the Hebrew word male or man in this passage, what the Hebrew uses is an idiom, uh, which the King James translates quite literally as any that pisseth against the wall. It's a derogatory description used in the books of Samuel and Kings to, to describe men as those who are worthless and it's always in the context of this these are these low down no good people that pee against the wall I'm going to kill all of them like that that's how it's used and one of the big takeaways in this chapter is that David is not the hero of his own story this story centers on David he is the the big important figure in biblical history here that we're looking at right but he's not the hero he's about to pull a stunt not so different from what Saul did to the priests at Nob by wiping out their town. That's what he's getting ready to do. He might feel as if he's justified because of the slight that he's received, but God sees this as wickedness, a point made later on in the chapter by Abigail and then by David himself. Rather than trusting in God to vindicate vindicate him, David seeks his own vengeance. To Again, quote Van Hoyt, In this connection, we encounter another expression, also highlighted by its threefold repetition, namely, delivering oneself by one's own hand, which is translated as taking or carrying out vengeance in verses 26, 31, and 33. What should be David's response? He should trust in the Lord. He should trust the Lord who in Deuteronomy 32, 35 says, vengeance is mine and recompense. Deuteronomy 32:36 says the Lord will vindicate his people. We'll, we'll come back and dwell on that theme longer next week as we, we look at chapter 26. But, but suffice it to say, David's intentions and his desires in this circumstance do not reflect those of a man after God's own heart. But then we meet the true hero or heroine in human terms of this story. Yeah might go on just like a little tiny rant? For people who look at the book, as, uh, the look at the Bible as this like patriarchal book that's always putting down women, I just want to like pick up the story and point people to it, or to Ruth's story, or Esther's story, or Mary's story, or several other stories, and say, can you read? <laughs> this is a woman. She lives in a patriarchal society, to be sure. But she still seems fully capable of using what the text calls her discretion and her beauty to influence the situation profoundly for the good of everyone involved she's the hero of the story and Nabal's servants they know where to turn for help Nabal has just made David's servants he's given them a bad message and David's going to be mad and they're they're seeing that this could go very badly for us there's 600 warriors in the desert who've been protecting us And now they're going to come attack us? Like This is a bad situation. And instead of trying to argue with Nabal, who they know won't listen to him because he's so hard-hearted and so foolish, instead they come to his wife, verse 14. But one of the young men told Abigail, Nabal's wife, behold, David sent messengers out of the wilderness to greet our master, and he railed at them. That could be translated, he screamed at them. He yelled at them. Yet the men were very good to us and we suffered no harm and we did not miss anything when we were in the fields as long as we went with them they were a wall to us both by night and by day all the while while we were keeping the sheep now therefore know this and consider what you should do for harm is determined against our master and against all his house and he is such a worthless man that no one can speak to him they they come to her and they say now you Think about this, and you figure out what to do. Please, please, please think of something, or we're all going to die. And the stereotypical movie character gets this kind of news and breaks down into hysterics and starts sobbing. But Abigail, she just gets to work. She solves the problem. Verse 18, Abigail made haste and took 200 loaves and two skins of wine, And five sheep already prepared and five sias of parched grain and a hundred clusters of raisins and two hundred cakes of figs and laid them on the donkeys. And she said to her young men, go on before me, behold, I come after you. But she did not tell her husband, Nabal. And as she rode on the donkey and came down under the cover of the mountain, behold, David and his men came down to her and she met them. So she makes haste, she prepares this enormous amount of food and sends it ahead of her. And if the way to soften a man's heart is through a good meal, she's off on the right foot, right? She she then meets David and falls down before him to pay homage before launching into a plea for mercy. There's several parts of this plea which highlight the discretion of Abigail, but I'll just point out a few of them. In verse 24, she immediately moves the focus off of Nabal, the, the center of anger, and onto herself. She says, on me alone my lord be the guilt it's going to be a lot harder for david to take his anger out on her than on that foolish man nabal which she also points out in verse 25 like yeah he is he's kind of an idiot nabal is his name and folly is with him she also addresses our earlier point through her intervention that the god in her coming to david In God coming, or in her coming and meeting with him, God is preventing him from incurring blood guilt on himself. See that in verse 26. My my Lord, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, because the Lord has restrained you from blood guilt and from saving with your own hand. She's assuming he's going to listen to her. She's assuming that his answer to her plea for mercy is yes. That's that's the only way God's restraining him, is by sending her out. Then in verse 27, she casually makes mention of the gift that she sent ahead. Now let this present that your servant has brought to my Lord be given to the young men who follow my Lord. It, again, to quote Joyce Baldwin, she says ca- casually in the middle of her masterly presentation of her case, Abigail makes passing reference to this present which she had sent ahead of her to disarm David. Though she speaks as a handmaid to her Lord, Abigail is the master of this situation. She continues to ask for mercy and to remind David that God will vindicate him. God will stand up for David. And he would be much better off when he has conquered all of his enemies and when God has made him king, he would be better off to not have a guilty conscience that a slaughter of largely innocent people would produce. And then the important part of the story is this, that David listens to her. David heeds her voice. It's it's almost, it's like the opposite of what happens in Genesis, right? In Genesis, Eve takes the fruit and Adam listens to her voice and they fall into sin together. And here, David is about to go running into sin And the voice of this woman is, pause, stop, don't do this. And he heeds her voice and is saved. Rather than railing against her and screaming as Nabal had at his servants, David lets loose with a threefold blessing in verses 32 and following. David said to Abigail, blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who sent you this day to meet me. Blessed be your discretion, and blessed be you who have kept me this day from blood guilt and from working salvation with my own hand. For as surely as the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, who has restrained me from hurting you, unless you had hurried and come to meeting truly by morning, there had not been left to Nabal so much as one male. It's that same idiom as earlier on, one, one of those people that uses the wall. And David received from her hand which she had brought to him. And he said to her, go up in peace to your house. See, I have obeyed your voice and I have granted your petition. Abigail's discretion saves the day. But in the end, even though she is the human hero of this story, there's a bigger picture behind what's happening. And that picture is that God himself was using Abigail to protect David from himself from David's self. To protect David from David, God sent Abigail. I want to read a rather lengthy quote here from Dale Ralph Davis, who sums this truth up really well. He says, The text teaches us how Yahweh rescues servants from their own stupidity, how he restrains them from executing their sinful purposes, how sometimes he graciously and firmly intercepts us on the road to folly. In the text, of course, Yahweh does this for his anointed king. But Yahweh is not bound up in the biblical text. His mercy is not confined to his special servants. His vigilance over his erring people is not restricted to 1020 B.C. What loving hands construct the roadblocks to our foolishness? What mercy sends frustration to our purposes? What kindness builds hindrances in our path? It is important that, like David, we respond rightly to such episodes of Yahweh's restraining providence. We could hardly do better than to worship with David's own words, Blessed be Yahweh, blessed be the Lord who has held back his servant from evil. In the tail end of this chapter, we find Abigail returning home to a husband who is so drunk that it isn't even worth speaking to him. In the morning, when he's finally sobered sobered up enough for her to talk to him, she tells him what she's done. And we don't know whether it's due to anger or fear or horror at how much she spent. He suffers what seems to be a massive stroke and goes into a comatose state for 10 days, and then he dies. It's that simple. David thought he needed to ride down and use his sword to wreak havoc, to wreak vengeance. But God can handle it. God didn't need David to to take care of Nabal. He doesn't need David's puny sword. He doesn't need my puny sword. When David hears of this, he again blesses the Lord, both for avenging his enemies and for holding back his hand from blood guilt. He sends in verse 39 and following and takes Abigail as his wife, which, though in Hollywood would seem like a happy ending to the story, it actually takes us back to the warning that Samuel gave in 1 Samuel 8, where the king is going to amass things, possessions, and people to himself. Though David is not yet the king, he's already begun to amass wives for himself in direct contradiction to Deuteronomy, which says kings are not to do that in Israel. He takes Abigail, he takes Ahinoam of Jezreel, he already had Michael, and though the text tells us that that Saul gives Michael away while David's gone, He's going to get her back, and he's going to keep taking more wives for himself. So we don't quite have the happy resolution to this story that we want there to be. But before we conclude, I just want to ponder for a moment how we can trust today for God to fight our battles for us. This seems so counterintuitive for us in our day. Long-suffering, patience when mistreated, these are not the sort of values promoted by either side in our politics or our culture. Even many churches on both sides of the culture war are either fighting for social justice or fighting for religious liberty or this or that. Ah, incidentally I think we should want to live in a just society and we should want to live in a society with religious liberty <laughs> like we, it's not wrong to want those things. but. But in the end, our basic posture, what what should it be when we are mistreated? What should be our basic posture? It's that we should trust the Lord who Psalm 3 says is a shield about us. That he is our glory and the lifter of our head. We, We don't have to fight for ourselves in this world. We can simply live lives dedicated to faithfulness and love. And you might ask, is like is that a recipe for being a doormat? I've had that conversation recently. Doesn't that make us a doormat if we just love people, including our enemies? I want to point to what Peter wrote about Jesus in 1 Peter 2. Beginning in verse 20. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it? It's always tempting for us to want to return reviling in return for revile. To hurl insults and slander at those who hurt us, who mistreat us. But Jesus, verse 24 says, bore the weight of our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to the sins of retaliation and live to righteousness instead. By his wounds you have been healed. You can know that if you're in Christ, those accusations, those pains, those injustices, real though they may be, painful though they may be, are all temporary. If you are safe in the hands of the eternal God, you can be free to love your enemies. God protected David from his impulse to avenge himself. And so we should plead for his mercy to help us live the same way. Now, for his protection from our own impulse to defend ourselves. Luke chapter 6 verses 35 through 36 I'll say this But love your enemies and do good and lend expecting nothing in return and your reward will be great and you will be sons of the Most High for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. Would you pray with me? Father God, we want to be like David and strap on our swords and kill our enemies, whether that's not literally, probably, but, but certainly rhetorically and in our hearts, that's what we want to do. That, that is our natural sinful inclination and we need your help. We need your help to change our hearts, to soften us, to put Abigails in the way, to confront us when we're about to do that. And Lord, we thank you that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you can actually change our hearts so that we want to love, even when it doesn't make sense in this world. And we thank you that you will do that for us. And we pray that you would continue in your mercy and your grace to throw roadblocks in our way when we're about to sin. We thank you, as Paul says to the Corinthians, that you always provide a way for escape from sin. In that moment of temptation, there's always a way out. And we pray for the grace to see it. And to walk on out. To to choose love, to choose obedience to you, to fear you more than we fear man and to trust that you, O Lord, will vindicate the righteous, that you are the shield around those who trust you. We need your help, and so we ask for it in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen.